0: I'm Jonathan Goldstein, host of Wiretap. Each week you're invited to listen in on my telephone conversations, whether funny, sad, wistful, or even slightly strange. You never know just what you might hear on Wiretap.
1: Uh, I mean, I knew you had a show. I just, I just didn't think that people actually listened to it. You... That's the breath of your genius, Jonathan. It's not just that you're funny, but you can be cripplingly, poignantly depressing.
2: The Wiretap Archives, available on CBC Listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC podcast.
3: From the Dock Project, this is Caravan. Part 2.
0: The south coast of Italy in April, on the sea, at night, is colder than I thought it would be. When I pictured life on the Mediterranean, it wasn't in a wool sweater, and so I only have a thin jacket to keep me warm. I climb out onto the deck of the Amara Z, a 30 meter tall ship, and look for an empty space in between the coils of ropes, heavy sails, and stacks of spotlights, to find a space to sleep. I knew I'd be roughing it, but I had the impression that I'd have a bed, and that I'd be sleeping inside. But instead... I'm alone on the deck under a beautiful but surprisingly frigid starry sky with only a thin blanket i stole from below deck and my bony arm for a pillow and a wind is kicking up and i can't help but ask myself what the hell have i done
3: I'm Macy Rowe, and this is The Doc Project, presenting our first-ever serialized podcast, Caravan. Over three episodes, we're following the story of Caravan, the legendary Canadian theater experiment, and Trevor Campbell, whose dream was to join them. This is a story about what happens after you run away with the circus. Today, part two, theater pirates. If you missed episode one, nothing that follows will make any sense, or at least not nearly as much sense as it could. So I suggest pausing here, going back one episode in your Doc Project podcast feed. You are looking for Caravan Part 1, The Bonnie and Clyde of Canadian Theatre. Once you've heard that, come back here and join us. Quick recap. In 2005, Trevor Campbell was a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, jazz-handsed theater kid when he heard about Caravan, a politically provocative theater troupe who toured the world on a wooden tall ship called the Amara Z. Caravan is the brainchild of Paul Kirby and Adriana, or Nans Kelder, a couple once referred to as the Bonnie and Clyde of Canadian theater. After nearly a decade of desperately wanting to become a caravanner, but always finding a reason to put it off, Trevor took the plunge. He auditioned, and he got in. He's finally being accepted to join their ranks and board the ship. It's a dream come true. The thing about dreams is that they don't always work out quite how we imagine. And once you're inside the fantasy, it can be hard to see your way back out. Trevor will take it from here.
0: I flew into Trapani, a city on the west coast of Sicily, took a bus, then took another bus, which deposited me in front of a boarded-up cafe in the small seaside town of Licata. Someone was supposed to be meeting me, but nobody showed up. My cell phone was out of minutes, so I found a payphone nearby and called the number I'd been given for the ship. No answer. I plunked coin after coin into the phone, my change supply dwindling, until a gruff voice finally responded. Caravan, someone said. Uh, hi, I began. My name's Trevor. Uh, my bus just arrived. I'm in Lakota. Where do I go? Yeah, yeah, hang on. And then silence. Some voices squabbled in the background. I could hear singing, laughter, and music playing. Something Balkan mixed with thumping house beats. Just when I thought I'd been entirely forgotten, the voice came back on the line. Someone's coming. Where are you? I looked around. There were no street signs uh the bus stop i think in front of the empty cafe i think there's no name i'm on a hill okay hang tight and then a click i stood there with my bags and watched a tiny old woman waddle past me up the hill dressed entirely in black each of her hands clutching a plastic bag with what looked like newspaper wrapped fish then she disappeared around the corner and I was alone again. About 7,000 kilometers earlier, I packed up my life in Toronto into a faux leather duffel bag I'd bought especially for the occasion. Later, I would tie a scarf around one of the buckles to achieve a Stevie Nicks microphone stand kind of vibe. Then I biked around and said my goodbyes. I tried to explain as best as I could to my friends and family what I was about to do. I recognized that I have a 3 month contract with the Sea Circus doesn't sound like an explanation. It sounds like a cover story. But it was obvious that my mind was made up. So they just told me to BE SAFE, actually they repeated this a few times. My partner and I broke up a few days before my flight, though we called it a break. And I was off. I remember looking out the window of the plane and thinking, you've put all your chips on this roll of the dice. Whatever happens next, your old life is over. Eventually, an affable northern Brit named Robbie strolls up to claim me and cut-off shorts and a bandana, towing a wooden pole cart behind him. I throw in my bags, and Robbie takes me through Licata, situated where the Sasso River meets the Mediterranean Sea. We pass ancient stone cathedrals that look like caves next to tiny gelaterias no bigger than windowsills, sagging laundry lines and lemon trees and a bar called Chin Chin, cheers in Italian. By the time we arrive at the gates of the marina, a loose pack of stray dogs is following us, looking more feral than friendly, but Robbie signals to his security guard and the gates clang shut behind us. Around the corner, finally, is the ship. I feel caught off guard, unprepared. I mean, sure, I'd seen pictures, but seeing it in person is like a break in reality, like, like seeing a fairy tale come to life. Actually, it's a little smaller than I pictured in my head, but still totally majestic. There are huge cascades of rope strung from the mast in all directions, tied up to winches, nets, and... people. A group of acrobats is rehearsing on the deck as Robbie and I approach the ship, climbing up the black rope and then tumbling dangerously close to a thin rubber pad. Those who see me wave hello, and Robbie calls out, "'This is Trevor.' I smile, wave, and do my best impersonation of someone who is not completely spellbound. I look for Paul and Nons, who I'm sure are standing by to greet me and welcome me aboard. They're the founders of Caravan and the couple who auditioned me back in Toronto, and sent me such an encouraging email about my persistence, but there's no sight of them. Robbie claps me on the back and says he'll catch up with me later. Wait, I call out to Robbie, which bed is mine? Robbie thinks for a second. We're out of beds, but maybe we can find one tomorrow. I nod, acting like the lack of a bed is a trivial detail. Okay, so uh, where should I sleep tonight? If I were you, he says, I'd sleep out on the deck. And that's how I found myself spending my first night with Caravan on the deck of the Amara Z, in the brisk winds of the Adriatic Sea. The Amara is more than just a physical space, it's like Mary Poppins' bag. The proportions seem to shift once you get inside. It's a little intoxicating. And that changes your perception of the world when you come back out. So, let's go back to the beginning of how this otherworldly space was created. The ship had always been a dream of Nons, long before a caravan's horse-drawn days. On land, the crew was limited to where the Clydesdales could take them. But what if, they thought, this touring band of artists and anarchists took their brand of political theater to the water? And they did. They settled in Kingston, Ontario to construct their new custom vessel, with help from the federal and provincial government and donations from over 400 corporations. They thought it would cost around 120000 but it ended up close to 1.6 million. All the while, Paul, Nans and their youngest son were living in trailers in the marina next to the boat. It was like a super romantic dream.
2: You know, sail off and uh, experience the world in a different way, for sure.
0: And this is Trevor Schwalness. The other Trevor. The other (laughs) Trevor. He helped design and captain the ship in the early days. As
2: soon as word dropped that they were building this traditionally rigged vessel in Kingston, uh, uh, everybody knew.
0: He had a lot of experience with sailboats. And when he heard about the ship, he just had to get involved. With Trevor's help, it was decided the boat would be designed as a Thames River Spritzel barge. And the Thames River Spritzel barge is a, a subcategory of a
2: subcategory of a subcategory of sailing vessels.
0: It was the first Thames River barge constructed since 1927. Paul and Nance chose the design because its flat bottom allows it to travel in really shallow waterways, as little as one meter of water. Flat bottom. It was like a shoebox. Mm, but apparently there used to be tons of them.
2: The, they're the 18 wheelers of the 1860s, traditionally staffed by uh, a man, a boy, and a dog. Uh, well, right off the top, I mean, being involved in the building of it was fun, it as it was this brand new thing, ground level and they were gonna go traveling. And and most of my experience had been sailing the Great Lakes, so that was kind of a step into a different world in my mind, in my imagination. They were gonna go places I'd never been.
0: Spend a lot of time on, on ships, and you get curious as to where they can take you. Life with caravan was loaded with possibility. For example, Paul and Nons wanted their boat to not only house around 20 cast and crew whilst traveling the world, but also act as a river water filtration system. So the dream was, Paul had this dream that the ship would, would pass through
2: the waterways of the Americas and, and take in the soiled water and leave pure, clean water behind. And the wet waste would go through this pond system, with, and we'd have like little fish and algae and stuff throughout the system, and then it would eventually go out clean.
0: When you say pond, do you mean like tanks? Yeah. Okay. And these tanks would double as dinner tables with clear tops practical and creative so you would see (laughs) the the waste as you ate
2: it was all the liquid that went through the toilet and out of the sink so when we had to hold the sink waste as well
0: so so the picture is while you're sitting at this table maybe eating dinner by the end it's clean water but at the beginning you're seeing like the toilet water coming in yeah the dinner table filtration system was the goal, but... After a certain point, the money ran out, and we just we had to get on tour. So, no toilet water filtration. Just the tubes and the tables. And so, in 1997, their creation, a ship, a stage, and a sanctuary all in one, was complete. They called it the Amara Z the heart of the sea goddess, and Paul Nan set sail with her crew of acrobats and actors down along the eastern seaboard. After years sailing around North America, Paul Nan sent their vessel across the Atlantic Ocean on a cargo ship to start their exploration of the waterways of Europe. The previous season had sailed along the coast of Greece. Now, it was 2012, and they were in Sicily, where Robbie had led me through the marina towards the ship for my first time. I'm here in Italy to be the music director and vocal coach for a piece of political activist circus opera called Uprising. It's about an international group of cyber pirates who hack into the World Bank to redistribute global wealth to those who need it most, like a bunch of futuristic Robin Hoods. Opening night is set for three months away, at the end of June. For the first couple of days, most of my exposure to Paul and Nons was in the morning meeting. Paul would have written a whole schedule before any of us had woken up, and our production manager would read it out to the group, with Paul jumping in to help decipher his handwriting or add explanation. He was juggling an enormous amount of ideas. Script writing, acrobatics, ship maintenance, and tour logistics. When he couldn't find the right word to describe a thought, he took a lot of pleasure in inventing a new one. He gave people nicknames and then took this a step further by referring to them only by the first initial of that nickname. Following his train of thought could be like deciphering a code, but soon enough he could say, we need a meeting with Miss V in the M&Ms to tighten up the chain routine in MQ4, and we'd all know what he meant. Nons, on the other hand, said much less. But she didn't seem shy or even particularly quiet. She was an observer who spoke when she wanted to. She seemed just as in control, if not more so, than Paul. That first week, I was given odd jobs. One of my favorites was holding the hands of the actors to keep them calm while they had cold plaster poured over their faces to make masks for the show. There were about 25 of us working on the production, most of whom were in their early 20s. I was 28. Everyone around me seemed so loose and free, instantly at home in this unconventional community. But I didn't really feel like I had a way in. Until Renee arrived.
4: Hi! I'm great. I'm in New Orleans. It's hot, but I'm happy.
0: Renee was my co-vocal arranger and musical director. The last time we talked was five years ago, on the Amara Z. But it's like no time has passed. From the moment we first met, we clicked.
4: When you walked on the boat, it reminded me a lot of me. Kind of used a very linear lifestyle, but like also this like free flowing openness and willingness. It was like a breath of fresh air on the boat, you know, because everybody cannot be willy nilly, um, I'm going dumpster diving and I only wear sarongs.
0: Renee and I were there for similar reasons. She had been in New York with a stalled singing career and a life that wasn't going as planned.
4: You know, I was seeking refuge. I was trying to run away by going on the boat that year.
0: We soon realized we weren't the only ones. We met people like Red, our spiky-haired British chef with a hot temper, who left after a couple of furious fights in the kitchen. Though in her defense, cooking for 30 tired and dirty miscreants is a thankless job. And Andreas, the Irish fiddler who played a fictionalized version of Louis Riel and would pee from the ship during rehearsals. And performances. Renee and I were in charge of arranging the score for the show. And from the start, we both realized this was not going to be our typical structured work environment.
4: I know. I mean, it was crazy. Because you and I really arranged a score for a 90-minute show with... One pair of headphones <laughs> and a computer, your Mac computer, <laughs> while sitting outside in the scolding heat.
5: Out outside of a
0: supermarket.
4: Outside of a supermarket. Yeah.
0: It's true. We spent many a hot day plunking out parts for a two-hour punk opera seated at the little public patio of the supermarket next to a crew of chain-smoking Sicilian men. Listen, it wasn't all gold, but if I do say so myself, we were pretty dang prolific. We were the Holland and Oaths of Lakata. No one
4: could touch our genius.
0: For Renee and I, a normal day of genius looked like this. After breakfast and the morning meeting, we would get an audio file from Paul, which he had been emailed by the show's composer, Ivan Marovich, who I've still never met. Each piece of music was complex and wildly different. One day we get Serbian folk, uh, then a French-Canadian reel, or some Jamaican calypso. And our direction was often limited to the cheeky, cryptic clues we found in Paul's script. Like this. A most spicy cayenne riff that scorches your throat and engages your stomach and torches your indignation. Okay? Renee and I would find the quietest place we could like that public patio of the supermarket, and write melodies and harmonies to join Paul's lyrics to Yvonne's songs. After lunch, we teach the parts to the actors. It was fast and furious work, and we made lots of mistakes. But slowly, Renee and I settled into this new rhythm, changing expectations of ourselves and the way life could look
4: when the first time you hear on and it's raining like all hands on deck you're like i gotta go out and rain and like i don't know if you know but you probably remembered my hair routines like i was not trying to be out there getting my hair wet all the time but you know we go out there and we're like stowing everything away in the rain and like you could be wearing your favorite outfit but you it's an emergency you're you're forced to really go outside of your comfort zone on a daily basis, multiple times a day, sometimes four, four, five times before you even put your real clothes on. So there could be conflict happening between two people on the boat, or you're going outside to brush your teeth. And this would happen to me in Bashka Polanka in Serbia. And I was um, officially the first Black person in the town of Bashka Polanka. Um, and that was, that was a fact given to me by the mayor of the town. Go mm-hmm. so outside to brush my teeth, people would be there with their babies, ready for me to kiss their children and watching me brush my teeth. So, you know, it was, you were just constantly challenged <laughs> to really just like, nothing's normal. There's no such thing as culture. There's no such thing as habit. There's no such thing as predictable. So the process of being in this, this wild space um, called the caravan allowed me to kind of come forward as a human being, who I really was.
0: Within my first two weeks in Lakata, I was asked to find a ride to a ceramics factory on the outskirts of town to convince them to give us some supplies to make some 10-foot spider puppets for the show. To be clear, I didn't speak Italian. Well, not really. Like the true keener I am, I'd been soft studying beginner Italian before my arrival, so I had enough words and phrases for basic communication. Anyway, my protests were overruled, and the next morning I found myself in the backseat of a Fiat Uno repeating, "Vorrei un po' di poveri di ceramica. Verei un po' di poveri di ceramica. Meaning, I would like some ceramic powder. It was nerve-wracking, and we got there, and I was told that no, I could not have some poveri di ceramica, but for me, that was beside the point. I'd gone in way over my head and come back up again. I was fine. It was the same feeling I got standing on the deck of the ship and looking out into the endless sea. I felt fragile in the best possible way. That even if things went wrong, it would be the start of a whole new adventure. For me, this was a revelation. When the things you're afraid of also excite you, then fear loses its power. I felt like anything could happen. Renee describes that feeling, looking out over the water, best.
4: That feels limitless. It feels comforting to breathe. It feels like you can occupy more space. It feels like your dreams matter, that you matter. It feels like you're a part of something much larger than you could imagine. It feels like you're in the water and outside the water and in the sun and, you know, watching the sun at the same time.
0: And this feeling had so much to do with Paul and Nans. They clearly believed I could do it. They had to believe the out of reach was possible. Otherwise, none of this boat would ever have existed.
4: You know, they're both very, extremely hardworking and they're constantly giving things up to make their dreams a reality and, and never, never retreating. I think, you know... Some people walk away upset at their tactics, and and other people see the final product of, of all their efforts and their choices.
0: Soon, that feeling of not fitting in that I'd had when I'd first arrived slowly melted away. The weird and wonderful people around me, I was one of them. We got each other. I was funny and organized and needed. And I was having the time of my life.
6: Hello, how are you?
0: I'm good. It's been almost a decade, eh? This is Elsa, another caravanner.
6: So I'm half Sicilian and half uh, British.
0: Elsa rocked my concept of how people could and do live in so, so many ways. I mean, when I called her up, she was pregnant and living between England, Italy, and Tunisia.
6: I don't know which country I'm going to live in. I don't even know which country I'm going to give birth in.
0: And why <laughs> shit <should> you?
6: <laughs> the life of nomads, eh?
0: I got the chance to know her pretty intimately in those early days because...
6: Um, well, we shared a bed, didn't we?
0: <laughs> we did. <laughs> platonically... Also was my roommate, well, bedmate, during that contract in La Cotta. She joined us a few weeks after I arrived, and her path to the caravan is one of my favourite stories.
6: So I was living in Palermo, and I was living in a squat, and I was really trying to find an alternative community that was also involved with the arts.
0: Palermo is a picturesque but ancient city, and there are a lot of crumbling abandoned buildings. Elsa and her community had built a nest in what had once been a three-story bank, decorating its enormous cement walls with murals and protest messages. One night, she was working the door at an underground theatre when a few of the caravanners from our contract in La wandered in. They started chatting and told Elsa what they were doing in Sicily.
6: And my eyes literally just went wider and I just started Mm -hmm. smiling. I was like, oh my god. Oh my God, this is the most amazing thing I've ever heard of. This is incredible.
0: They hung out a bit after the show, but soon it was time to say goodbye.
6: And we parted ways. And there was that second when we parted ways that I turned around and I just thought, what am I doing? And I ran back. (laughs) 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 I ran back and I just went, do you need anybody? And they said, "Oh, I know you're an artist and you're involved in theater, but we don't have any any spaces available, we're really full up with everybody there. All we're missing is a chef because our chef assistant has left. And again, my face just lit up, my eyes went wider, my smile, you know, just went from ear to ear, and I went, "I can't believe it, I'm a pastry chef." I said, "Right, I'm gonna pack my bags, I'm coming."
0: Elsa hopped in the car with the caravanners and came to the ship unannounced. She made her case to Paul and Nons. They needed a cook, and especially one who spoke Italian, right? So she was allowed to stay.
6: I don't think there was any leeway that they could get rid of me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What do you think people go there looking for? And what were you looking for?
6: Well, I was really looking at a time of healing. So I was really looking for my place in the world. For me, the best part of the caravan are the people where everybody was together for the same aim. You know, we were all working together for the same aim. Were you a bit shocked by the loose structure?
0: I thought of myself as someone who needed certain things like hot water or my own room Um, and I didn't need any of that and it only took a few weeks to really kind of find that.
6: I remember you were very organized, (laughs) (laughs) very, um, you know, very organized and you're one of those people who comes in and, you know, sets his schedule, says, you know, this is what's going to happen at eight. This is what's going to happen at 10 past eight. At 12 minutes past eight, you need to do this. At 15 minutes past eight, you were also always very well dressed, very clean. It looked like, in you know, we didn't have a washing machine. People washed things by hand. Nobody ironed anything. And I have no idea how you looked so great every day. Looked like you had an iron. You had a washing machine. Maybe you were dry cleaning stuff on the side. I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Do you know what's funny? It shows how uptight I was at that time of my life because I was like, wow, I'm really rough in it. Like, I'll just like (laughs) throw on whatever. But still the impression I gave you was that I was dry cleaning. One of my biggest impressions about this period was realizing how much comfort I was accustomed to and peeling away those layers to think about what made me feel safe and why. I mean, you think you need a toilet, but then you get used to a bucket. And you think you need a washing machine, but it turns out there's a bucket for that too. And of course, you think you need money, but with room and board taken care of? I mean, sure, there were things I wanted, but what else did I need? As the weeks on the ship turned into months, I got a bit obsessive about just how little I required to get by. All caravanners are volunteers, but usually get a small allowance to have a little bit of fun. In Lakata it was 10 euros a week. Lazing around after dinner, we'd dream about what we'd buy with that Friday's pay. A pear was 1 euro, a cup of pistachio gelato was 2, and a pizza at the local joint was a whopping 8 euros, practically a whole week's salary. After three months, my contract was up. The show had been postponed, and then postponed again, so I never actually got to see it. But it didn't matter. I'd found that passion that I'd come to Caravan searching for, and I was so excited to discover the next adventure. I said goodbye to Renee, Elsa, Paul and all the rest, and I moved back to Toronto for a bit, and then on to New York and San Francisco. I couldn't stop moving, and I couldn't stop thinking about going back to the ship. So I rejoined them in Italy, this time Salerno, a port town near the Amalfi Coast, then Paris, Berlin, and my third contract with Caravan in Louisiana. But my honeymoon was almost over. My next years with Caravan, they got a little more complicated.
3: AC here. We have these amazing photos of the Amara Z on our website. You can see the full tall ship, as well as a cross section of the area where Trevor lived and worked. You can find those at cbc.ca slash dockproject. Coming up after the break, Trevor finds his sea legs as a caravanner. But just as he does, the boat begins to rock, metaphorically speaking.
0: I'm Jonathan Goldstein, host of Wiretap. Each week you're invited to listen in on my telephone conversations, whether funny, sad, wistful, or even slightly strange. You never know just what you might hear on Wiretap.
1: Uh, I mean, I knew you had a show. I just just didn't think that people actually listened to it. That's the breath of your genius, Jonathan. It's not just that you're funny, but you can be cripplingly, poignantly depressing.
2: The Wiretap Archives, available on CBC Listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts.
0: once was a notorious pirate named Jean Lafitte. In the early 19th century, Lafitte plundered Spanish merchants sailing through the Gulf of Mexico and then sold the goods with the help of his brother Pierre through a blacksmith shop in what is now New Orleans' French Quarter. Lafitte smuggled in goods that locals couldn't normally access or afford, earning him the nickname the Robin Hood of the Bayou. He would later go on to become a bit of a war hero which is why a lot of things in louisiana are named after him national parks monuments even a town lafitte louisiana 30 kilometers south of new orleans and upstream from one of the most infamous pirate colonies in history and in 2013 i went there to rejoin my own little band of theater pirates caravan stage I had the same job as last time, music director and vocal arranger, but this time, there was no Renee, so I'd be working alone. This show was called Hacked, about a group of freedom fighters being targeted by the surveillance state, loosely based on a battle between whistleblower Edward Snowden and the NSA, as told through a blend of opera, dance, and wild acrobatics. By this point, I wasn't just along for the ride. I was part of it. I felt a new sense of responsibility. And now I was recruiting people.
5: I heard about it from you. We had met and we discovered that we had a lot of things in common.
0: In the same way Heather, my old director, had introduced Caravan to me eight years before, I introduced Caravan to Jamie.
5: And you told me about your experiences on Caravan. And uh, a light went on. I said, oh, wow, I'd really, really like to do something like that. I'd really like to do exactly that
0: these days jamie teaches in northern europe i called him at work at a sleepaway camp on an island off the north coast of germany
5: Uh, my roommate snores and i slept in my classroom
0: classic jamie james jamie and i actually met on a date romance wasn't really in the cards for us but we kept in touch as friends and one day jamie texted me to tell me he was going to apply to join the caravan and soon we found ourselves together in Lafitte, Louisiana.
5: And so I ended up singing with you in the show.
0: One of Jamie's favorite memories of the ship is one that terrified him.
5: We had to go to the very top of the scaffolding on the ship, which was quite high. Not that high, but for me, someone who's scared of heights was, uh, it was very high.
0: We were there to make theater, but we were also living on a tall ship. So we needed to know how to help out with the boat related stuff hoisting sails, tying ropes, even though for most of my contracts, we never actually sailed anywhere.
5: And I had to go climb up that ladder like you did. Um, but the first day I did it, I was so scared I maybe went up a meter and I w- and, and came off crying and sweating with like bloody hands because I was grasping on too hard. Um, but after a little bit, little by little each day, um, in a few days, I made it to the top and that feeling of actually conquering that fear was um, quite powerful. So powerful, actually, that it stays with me today. So I'm actually, since then, I've climbed pyramids and I uh, take kids to climbing gyms and I'm the first one to to jump off of the platform. And it was a beautiful view from up there, even though there wasn't much to look at. I and mean, there were just it was just muddy marshes and. Uh, a run-down old town that had been hit by a hurricane but still there was something about the sunsets and there was something about the, the the muggy simplicity of all of it that was really beautiful.
0: Back then, Lafitte had an official population of 972 which meant 30 or so caravanners made a sizable shift in the town's dynamic.
5: We we rolled into this very, very small town, which seemed pretty conservative.
0: Actually, Caravan had been there about a decade earlier for another production, so this was a bit of a homecoming?
5: You could tell people were like, oh god, here are the circus freaks again. Uh, I felt everybody was a bit suspicious.
0: Our ship was moored next to an abandoned supermarket called Piggly Wiggly, which we turned into our rehearsal space. We nicknamed it The Pig, as in, we're meeting in The Pig at 9.30 to discuss the scene where Zorane gets tortured by the Aerialist in the compression cage.
5: I could describe what this place looked like, uh, an old supermarket that had been hit by a hurricane was being used as a a storage place for someone's rescued uh, medical equipment.
0: It was full of adult diapers and wheelchairs. Oh, and boxes of Mardi Gras beets.
5: And then we completely got rid of all of the garbage in there and took all the tiles off the floor over a period of the next few days. It was a lot of work and it was hot. And I realized, ooh, this is going to be an interesting job
0: interesting, and unexpected. I wanted to talk to Jamie because he knows about a very specific side of how this anarchist theater boat functions. On Caravan, a true non-for-profit with no real source of revenue, everything exists in the fringes of acceptable societal behavior, from how you get food, to shelter, fuel, everything. So. Jamie ended up doing something very different than what he thought he'd come for.
5: I first arrived on the ship to do an administrative job, but then one of the uh, performers took off on his motorcycle.
0: So Jamie was an administrator and also performed in the show. But his main job in Lafitte was...
5: The hustle. Everything was donated. Everything was in exchange for something else.
0: The hustle is convincing someone that whatever paltry item you have to offer in exchange for something is a fair trade, even if you have nothing at all. It's equal parts sincerity, showmanship, and storytelling, sprinkled with a little bit of luck. My first year in Lakata, Caravan had multiple apartments for months at a time, all through cashless negotiations. And another common hustle was negotiating with local grocery stores and bakeries for their expired items. Actually, this was one of the chores on the caravan chore wheel, dumpster diving. Lafitte was a little bit harder to crack.
5: And my first job was to find find us a car rental agency or a car rental place that would lend us a car for three months in exchange for advertising. I mean, everybody just laughed or was like, what?
0: He was also tasked with finding free accommodations for those who didn't have a bed on the ship. Jamie would spot a house, maybe one with a little sign of eccentricity or whimsy, like with a garden gnome or wind chimes, something like that. And he would go up, knock on the door of this total stranger and say, Hey, I'm with the tall ship that just pulled into town. Can a trapeze artist sleep in your house for a month? Most of Lafitte politely declined. At first, that is. People might say no in the beginning, but then they get to know you, and then they'd come back and say yes. The supermarket across the street let us use their internet. All of the caravanners were allowed to get library cards. And someone even donated a camper van for accommodations, all for free. And that's because Caravan gives away everything it has for free. And while the arrival of Caravan can be quite a shock, it brings a lot to these places. And this attracts kindness. In Lafitte, just by the on-ramp to the highway, is a bar called Mitch Martin's Welcome In. Basically, just two mobile homes shoved together. Mitch Martin's has pool tables, cold beer and peanuts, and a wooden dance floor where couples in jeans shuffle around to zydeco and roadhouse blues. Basically, a roadhouse bar in the deep south is not somewhere that screams, come on over, you big Canadian queer. You might say it screams the opposite. But Mitch Martin's was our local. In the company of Caravan, I felt brave enough to go there. And the regulars felt brave enough to welcome me. That's part of the magic of what Paul and do. That movement, that transience, It lets everyone that comes in contact with it try something new. You can step out of your normal without consequence. Try it on. See how it fits. But at the same time I was learning, living in a world with its own rulebook can take its toll. That first year in La I remember watching a Spanish dancer named Maria rehearse a solo performance on the deck. The number was a tribute to Isabel Eberhard, a Swiss gender nonconforming writer whose move to Algeria and conversion to Islam was considered revolutionary in the 19th century. All throughout Maria's dance, she kept this small piece of silk in the air. Through handstands, cartwheels, and other swift maneuvers, the silk never touched the ground. It was mesmerizing. I couldn't wait for audiences to see it. And then one day, she was told that the scene had been changed and her dance was cut. All her work had been for nothing. Shortly after that, she left. And she wasn't the only one.
5: And it did happen two or three times when I was there. People said, I'm out of here, screw this crap. And they left.
0: Sometimes the pressure cooker, that is caravan, was just too much for people. There were plenty of stories of people creeping off the boat in the dark, or just never returning from a night out on the town. But actually, that was kind of what Paul and preferred. If you really wanted to go, you should go. Because in such close quarters, resentment spreads like disease. Positive people get frustrated.
4: So a bad day on the boat... I'm avoiding people. I'm avoiding people left and right. Um, And I lay on my bunk and I put my clothes over myself and over my head so no one finds me. I act like laundry.
0: You can just stew in your own head, even though the space is small, like it makes your,
4: Mm
2: -hmm. I feel like your head
0: kind of shrinks on that chip sometimes. Yeah. I had my own resentments building with Caravan. Work wasn't evenly distributed, and even when it was, some people would sit back and force others to pick up their slack. But this wasn't my ship. I was an invited guest, and I didn't want to rock the boat, so to speak. And besides, there were so many things I wouldn't have changed, so much that I loved about this community and the people it allowed us to become, so the harder things got? the more I was determined to stick it out. But things were shifting for me that year. It was my third year with Caravan. This time, we were in Red Hook, Brooklyn, in New York City. And things felt... different. The ship was moored next to an active concrete storage yard. There was always concrete dust in the air. It was common to hear people coughing throughout the day, and some people slept wearing masks to keep their lungs clear. Now I was part of a team that spent most of our time high up in the rigging of the ship, setting up projectors and maintaining the complicated lighting rig that hangs above the deck to run the show. And I liked the work, but I felt like there were some safety issues. I learned to tie special knots and then had to use them right away before I was sure I could get them right. But I'd been pushing myself outside of my comfort zone for so long, it was hard to tell how much was too much. I didn't know how or when to say no, until I had no choice. Fast forward a few months. We've sailed up from Manhattan to Hudson, New York. Only two hours by car, but several days via the Amara Z. It's incredibly hot and humid. Two shows in a row were canceled by rain. The atmosphere is tense. A cast member named Jove has this wicked toothache and needs to see a dentist. With nothing to do at night, some people are drinking more than usual. And there's a mix of lethargy and frustration at the morning meetings. Some people feel like they're not being heard. Then, one afternoon, I have to head to the top of the ship to do some rigging work. One of my jobs is to move and secure some of the equipment we use for the show in this gigantic platform called a truss, which hangs above the stage. I hook up my safety harness and climb up to the crow's nest alone. It's hot, but overcast. I can see some other caravanners down in the park working on various projects. A few are painting a sign on a tarp. Our chef, Bernard, and his assistant are carting bags of donated produce back to the ship for dinner. Suddenly, I notice three people, some sort of uniformed agents, walking towards the ship. Maybe you remember what happens next. These three people walk through the gate, down the dock, and across the gangway onto the deck directly below me. I don't know who they are, but now, as they get closer, I can see they're not police, they look like government agents. The three agents talk to Paul and Nons. I hide in the crow's nest with no idea of what's up, periodically peeking down till I see them leave, then give it another five minutes to be sure they're really gone, and then climb down to see what's happened. People gather in a frantic hush around Paul and Nons. It was a visit by the U.S. Customs and Border Protection Division of Homeland Security. Paul Anon said the visit was about the ship classification. They were in this battle with the Canadian government to get back to Canada, since their pleasure ship classification had been revoked in 2012. But here's what made me nervous. I heard that the agents took a list of our names. I was assured this was also standard practice when security agents boarded a ship, but here's why I didn't like government agents having my name. About half of us were from countries other than the United States, which was perfectly legal. We couldn't work in the U.S., but since Caravan was a nonprofit, we could volunteer. We just needed a special visa, called a B-1. I knew Nons had sent off information to request the visas, but I'd never been told if they'd arrived. It turns out, they hadn't. Nons didn't tell Homeland Security this, but if they found out I didn't have a visa... I would be in big trouble. I, I was breaking the law. For the first time, it wasn't the rules according to Caravan that mattered, but the rules of the real world. And those rules had just walked onto the ship, in uniforms. So even though this visit hadn't been about the visas, the next one might be, I could be deported. Maybe never able to work in the US, or, or even come back to visit my family. I decided I had to leave, get out, before that could happen. Now, I just had to tell Paul and Nuns.
1: Okay, so what's the. What are you, what are you saying? Uh, I, well, I don't know how much you've spoken,
0: but uh, we kind of need to leave immediately. Like tonight? But tomorrow. This is me talking to Paul and Nuns. We have this tape because at the time there was a documentarian living with us on the boat. He gave me this audio from his video footage. Here's the next business day. The potentiality is that something is passed
1: along, and when I try and cross the border, something's in my file. Like they don't mess around. Even remember, with... if they were gonna, okay, I, I don't want to argue with you, but you know, the, I think the, if they were gonna, they knew everything when they came here. Yeah, and if they were gonna do anything, they would have said, "Okay, you guys have to leave," you know. And they didn't. I mean, I think you're, I think you're panicking and uh, needlessly. So I, I think so I, I have, g- that's, have that's, a right to do it. Well, mm. you do, I'm, but I'm just expressing my opinion. I know, and I totally,
0: yeah. and I feel awful and torn about it, and it's not what I want to be doing at all. But even if there's a small chance that they can, say you were doing something you weren't supposed
1: to be doing, or you weren't, you know? I, I mean, for us, the main thing is to not panic and stay together and work as a group, you know? And I know, but what
0: happens if we get deported and they say you can't come not, back well, to America for 10 years? Well, I can't
1: promise you that they're not going to get, you're not going to get, but I absolutely, I'm 100% convinced they're not going to come stomping in here and grab people and before. Deport- I mean and they Lee just told us that they weren't going to that. Everything Comes boils down to a personal uh, one person standing in front of you making a decision. And I felt a lot better about that before I saw three border patrol officers come on the boat. But okay.
0: I'm not trying to be
1: an extreme. Well no, but you know it. really, Trevor, you you know you've decided it's a done deal, so this, but I understand exactly what you're saying. It's not against you. No, I know that. I know that. I don't I don't. No they one
0: seemed know. to get what the big deal was. I didn't want to get deported. I didn't want a record. I was bewildered that I even needed to explain that. After the conversation, I went to my room to pack. Ryan, the videographer, followed me. I always hope <laughs> I'm going to get rid of more stuff than I
1: accumulate.
0: I think, well, I think it's one of those situations where you just try and explain yourself and accept that uh, you're maybe not going to be understood or you're going to be misunderstood. I think it's, I mean, it's always so hard to leave this boat because this is your family while you're here, and then more than your family, you just spend every waking moment with these people. Every thought is consumed by the project you're working on, and you're sandwiched in between. You're just part of a unit. You kind of lose a little bit of individuality, which is actually something that I really like about the boat, and that's probably the saddest part, is I love being part of this. I hope I explain myself. I hope people understand. I think they understand. It's hard too, because I know for Paul and Nance, I mean, they're just, there's something about the gamble of all of it that they handle in a really special way, like, I wish I, I don't know, those scary things excite them in a weird way, not in a masochistic way, but they just, you know, they're like, we dare you, we dare you, like, you come and try and take her boat, you can't take her. Oh, you can't do that. We're just gonna do this. And I think ninety percent of the time it works for them. But that ten percent That's too much. It's too much for me right now to take that chance. It's too risky. Um but I don't think I there's any way I could do this and not feel like a part of me was making a mistake. But I think no matter what, I would feel that way. It's just one of those. It's high-stakes, it's high-stakes living, right? Listening back, I can hear how desperately I'm trying to stay positive. In truth, I think I was in shock. An hour before, the ship was my home. Now, I'm packing my bags. I was gutted. And worse, I felt like it was my fault. I felt like a traitor. I didn't see Paul and Nons again that night, and I caught a train out of Hudson the next morning before the sun came up. And that was the end of the adventure. The ship, Paul and Nons, I haven't seen them since. I went home, couch surfing until I found an apartment, and life moved on. Very painfully, at first. I felt like I was in withdrawal or had been exiled from a place that no one else even believed existed. I hadn't been ready to say goodbye to Caravan, and that final conversation with Paul and played over and over again in my head. I fluctuated between feeling weak and ashamed, a coward who had turned his back on his community, and frustrated and angry because I'd been handed the blame for a situation that I didn't create. Even though I was the one who left, I felt abandoned. And I was pretty sure that Paul Anand and many of the caravanners felt like I had abandoned them. One day I was there, and the next, I was gone. I just disappeared in the dark. It's been five years since that night, and since I talked to Paul Anand's. Leaving caravan has ripped a hole in me and it hasn't healed I'd wanted to be fearless but I'd run Did I also leave behind that free and wholehearted person I'd become Sometimes it feels that way But also I just want to make this right I want to know if over time they see the story any differently or or maybe I should be the one apologizing. So it's time, I have to talk to Paul and Nons, and it has to be in person, I know this, so I can look that me from the boat in the face and, and see for myself what parts of that person still exist. Let's just say, I'm not expecting a welcome wagon.
3: From the Doc Project, this is Caravan. You can hear what happens next right now on Caravan Part 3, Homecoming. Join Trevor as he meets Paul and Nons face-to-face and sets foot on the Amara Z for the first time in five years. Episode 3 is available right now on your Doc Project podcast feed. You can also find it on the CBC Listen app. Caravan is produced by Trevor Campbell and Julia Poggle. It's edited by me, A.C. Rowe. Our digital producers are Jeff Isaac, Jonathan Orr, and Althea Manasen. Our senior producer is Jennifer Warren. Special thanks to the rest of the team at The Doc Project, Alison Cook, Tanera McLean, and Kevin Ball. I'm A.C. Rowe. Thanks for listening.
2: For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.